I was in St. Leonard's on a supposed hunting trip, wrote Detective Carr of his first encounter with the Prohibition-era mob boss, Joe Walnut. The real purpose of my visit was to check up on the strangest story of bootlegging and smuggling I had ever heard. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Six years before the climactic 1927 battle, the newly hired straight-laced British detective William Carr would first encounter his future art nemesis, the mob boss Joe Walnut. Joe Walnut's Madawaska mob was then just another mid-sized regional Maritimes gang involved in smuggling illegal liquor from European ships into the United States. However, they were about to make a move that would catapult them into the big leagues. The young detective was in St. Leonard investigating strange rumors that thousands of gallons of denaturated alcohol was being smuggled into the small border town. This stuff was used to manufacture everything from perfume to antifreeze and was extraordinarily toxic to drink. So its purpose was baffling. Detective Carr checked into the Arrow Hotel, owned by Joe Walnut himself, saying that he was merely a tourist hunting moose. The Arrow Hotel had a bar called La Belle Beer Parlor, where alcohol was sold openly despite being illegal. I spent many hours in the place. Carr would write in his 1938 book, High and Dry. Listening to the tales of the activities of the infamous Joe Walnut, the uncrowned king of Madawaska County and his gang. Carr heard Joe Walnut described as tall and slim, agile as a cat, dark featured with thin cruel lips. His eyes were black as coal, yet slightly protruding. The white bloodshot from constant drinking. He had a fiendish temper and few scruples. It was said he could jump in the air and kick a man in the face with both feet before the first foot touched the ground again. Carr also noted, he had 11 children. Several of the older boys were actively engaged in the bootlegging and smuggling game with him. Others attended private schools, while most of the girls were in convents. Walnut's daughters were outliers. The Madawaska mob employed both men and women. Detective Carr heard one tale about a high-speed chase where a truck full of illegal whiskey was racing at 60 miles an hour along the winding roads over the border. The American border guards had been on their guard and prepared to use their guns, but hesitated to do so. For at the steering wheel of the speeding car was a woman, wrote Carr, adding, Imagine that! Carr heard of some ingenious methods that the Madawaska mob used to smuggle booze. Six dozen bottles of liquor packed into barrels then covered with fish guts. Grain alcohol shipped in coffins, another as Bible tracts. Another shipment was covered with Christmas trees and shipped as such. 
Many a boxcar was loaded at both ends with liquor and the doorway with lumber or laths. The smuggling was not a one-way street, Carr discovered. No smuggler ever ran a load of liquor across the American border without bringing back a load of dutiful goods. He recalled the unusual amount of luxury goods that he'd already noticed back in St. John, suspecting that they were the products of bootlegging, including silk, jewelry, cotton goods, radios, and automobiles. Carr was bewildered by recent reports that Joe Walnut's mobsters suddenly switched to bringing back enormous amounts of scrap metal. While continuing his investigation in La Belle Beer Parlor, Carr observed police and customs agents, Canadian and American alike, openly drinking with known smugglers and bootleggers. The youthful and idealistic Carr rationalized this away. Many men had a wholesome regard for his enemies. Who can help but admire brave opponents? The British and German troops fraternized in France at Christmas. Why then shouldn't the customs officers and smugglers fraternize between skirmishes? He did, however, begin to grow suspicious after visiting some custom officers' houses. When one considers that these men are very poorly paid, it seems astounding that they could afford the luxurious homes that they possessed. Carr heard that some nights the power would go out in St. Leonard. That was always done when Joe was operating, not to conceal what he was doing, but as a warning to curious persons that they had better stay indoors. I got some very interesting information, the detective wrote as his investigation progressed. The Madawaska mob was purchasing all the empty liquor bottles they could find. He also learned that Joe Walnut had recently bought a small printing press in Maine. The detective struggled to piece together these mysterious clues. Perhaps as a warning, patrons at La Belle Beer Parlor told him of another detective who had investigated Joe Walnut. He had arrived at the St. Leonard's Hotel and joined the life of the town, tickled to death with the evidence he was accumulating. Joe played him like a cat and mouse. He arranged a party and invited the would-be Sherlock Holmes along. The party grew wilder and wilder, and when the climax was reached, Joe told the little detective that he had known who he was the whole time. The victim was drenched with rum out of a cow's horn, like a veterinarian would drench a sick cow, and given a good deal of rough handling. He was then stripped of his clothes and left at the top of Van Buren Hill. Later, the detective was seen staggering down the hill, drunk as a lord. He was so thoroughly ashamed or frightened, he was never seen again. Joe had the reputation of being a great practical joker. Detective Carr dryly replied. To maintain his cover, Carr went out moose hunting, when suddenly, a bullet whistled over my head, cutting a twig off a branch of a tree immediately above my head. I fell on my stomach behind a windfall and demanded in no uncertain terms, what the hell? He decided it was time to leave St. Leonard. Only after he'd left did he piece together Joe Walnut's plan. The Madawaska mob was using the scrap metal to build a secret network of stills all over the North Shore to redistill the toxic industrial alcohol 
to take out the poison. They then package it in the used liquor bottles they bought, labeling them with popular high-end brand names that they printed from their new printing press in Maine. The astronomical profits from this would soon make Joe Walnut an extraordinarily wealthy, internationally infamous gangster with a vast criminal network dominating the Maritimes and New England. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.